Thank you for taking the time to check out the Insight Myanmar podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd be very grateful if you would consider rating, reviewing, and or sharing this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If our feed is not in your podcast player, please let us know and we'll assure it can be offered there. We're happy to bring you the following interview with a guest who's connected to an exciting upcoming event, the Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival. It will run from February 1st to the 13th and feature a wide range of films, documentaries, shorts, animations, and panel discussions. Nowhere else can one find so many diverse forms of media connected to Myanmar that are ready to be streamed in the privacy of one's home. While there's no charge to log in and watch these features to your heart's content, the film organizers kindly request that viewers consider contributing a donation of any amount. All the proceeds will be going towards humanitarian missions in Myanmar. In their own words, the events organizers write, These provide humanitarian assistance in Chin, Kachin, Karen, Kareni, and Shan states, poor ethnic areas most severely impacted by food insecurity and emergency shelter needs. Support will also go to freelance media and nonviolent human rights activists forced into Thailand. Know that your contributions will make a difference in Myanmar through enabling dedicated local organizations to courageously carry on grassroots work in a time of darkness. So, if you're encouraged by what you hear from today's guest, we encourage you to take advantage of this special opportunity and take in a variety of film festival events. You can search for Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival to learn more or follow the links on our website. For now, let's get into today's interview. a clip from the feature film Golden Kingdom that was made by the filmmaker Brian Perkins, who's my guest today on Insight Myanmar podcast. This is also a film that will be featured in the upcoming Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival. And we're going to chat a bit about the making of this film, which is quite unique. So Brian, thanks so much for joining us on Insight Myanmar podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Yes, let's get right into the film at first. And for those listeners that haven't watched the film or haven't heard of it, can you give a brief synopsis of the plot and what happens in the film? Um, well, the film is really 
a pretty simple tale about structured around four um, child novice monks living in a, a monastery in the mountains of Myanmar in, in Shan State, although that's not explicitly stated in the film. And when the abbot, the Sayadaw, who's keeping an eye on them and training them, has to leave, they're, they're forced to take care of themselves. And a war breaks out while he's gone, and they kind of have to learn how to survive in this new world that's approaching and infringing on the monastery and one of the boys ultimately has to choose to go out into the world to try to help the others and i won't spoil what happens for your listeners who are going to watch the film Mm, right so as you mentioned it's a pretty simple plot line that you choose but the way it's filmed and the, uh, the evocative nature of the scenes and the way life plays out is really something to be to behold and really something quite unique, which we'll get into. But before we do, can you share a bit about what motivated you to want to come to Myanmar and make a film about four young Buddhist novices at a monastery? Yeah, I mean, so I my, what I wanted to do for my first film was... Uh, an American film, a story set in Oregon, actually, period. And I had written that script, and I'd had, I th if, I, if I recall, like I hadn't gotten into some Sundance lab or something, and I had some some space ahead of me, and I decided in my grumpiness that I was just going to go to Asia. And so I still had planned on doing that film, and I bought a ticket to China and had no return ticket, and I was traveling around a lot. And around this time... Myanmar had just um, opened up, you know, this was in 2012. And so I decided to go to Myanmar and I wasn't planning on making a film or anything, um, but I went on a trek into the mountains and I'd been meditating. Um, I was not a stranger to, to Buddhism or meditation practices. And so I ended up at this monastery on a trek and, you know, you can't get there by car um, now I believe you can, but at the time you had to hike in up the mountain like a day. And I, I s spent some time there and the story, I mean, just meeting those children, this, I saw like, what would happen if the abbot wasn't here? And they were just living so independently in a way, um, because many of them were gone at that point and the Ubazine who normally takes care of the kids wasn't there. But it just sparked this narrative idea in my head, like what would happen if, if these children were left alone? And it just, you know, those, those who write stories or make movies or anything like that, any kind of creative practice, you know when you have an idea and it's, it's the idea. It just came to me. And it almost emerged fully formed like Athena from Zeus's head in, in a strange way. And the next day it just kept coming and coming and coming. And I asked my guide to talk to the abbot um, to translate and ask if we could potentially shoot a film there. And he asked him and he said, yeah, you, you could do it. And so I told him, I was like, I'm going to be back and I'm going to shoot this film. And I ended up going to India and lots of other places, but that was the original spark for the film. And then of course I had to get money to make it and things like that. Right. Yeah. So then you fulfilled your promise. You came back to Myanmar and you shot a film on that very location that had so enchanted you and where this story had manifested in your mind. What was it like at that time? I know the film came out in 2015. I'm not sure when it was filmed. I'm just trying to trace back 
Myanmar's development into its uh, its semi democratic phase and and the freedoms that were there. But what was it like when you came back to try to shoot the film? What kinds of challenges did you have in even being able to uh, to carry out that that mission of making a film there? I mean, the challenges began even before I arrived because. Uh, you know, if you watch the film, there's nothing explicitly, you don't really, you see soldiers, but you don't know who they belong to. They could be from a militia, they could be from the government army, you have no idea. I wanted to kind of give a perspective from, of war from a child's viewpoint. You know, they're not necessarily understanding the politics of what's going on, they just know that these external forces that are violent are arriving and it's causing chaos in their world. And so I had tried to, it wasn't even a, a choice to censor myself or anything like that because I wanted to create that kind of bubbled consciousness um, of a child in a way. So it wasn't even directly discussing the government, but I still knew that they would be suspicious of anything. And even before I even arrived, when we, I got to Bangkok to get my visa, I found out that I had been blacklisted from entering the country. And at that point, I understood that this, this guy I'd met my previous trip, who had been asking me all these questions about what airport I was flying from and things like that. I was like, why is he asking so many questions? Um, somebody from Myanmar was actually a, an informant for the government. <laughs> And had, uh, you know, basically been feeding them information. And so by the time I went to get my visa, I was on a blacklist and couldn't enter into the country. But if I could just ask, how did you find out that you were blacklisted? Were you explicitly told in, a, in an embassy that you, you, you were on a, a blacklist? Well, I was on a list. Um, and I had a basically a fixer in Thailand heading that who worked with the embassy often and so the one of the um, embassy employees or told him that so uh, what happened was then I then had to I prefer not you know not to go into names but I was then invited by someone who was working with the peace process in the government I was invited to come to the country for a workshop in quotations and they we asked for a month to be there and they gave me 10 days I believe and so I was able to enter into the country with that and uh, then make my way well I did some scouting first and um, worked on the script and the translation and things like that um, but <clears throat> yeah I had I only had 10 days before I was staying there illegally. And so then I stayed um, over my visa for another five weeks, potentially, um, which was its own kind of adventure getting out. But yeah, that so even before I stepped foot in, in Myanmar for the project, I knew it was going to be quite challenging. And luckily no one else on the crew had any problem getting a visa because they were giving tourist visas no problem at the time you know uh it was just me who had been singled out because i foolishly had and naively had had trusted someone you know um 
which, you know, you live, you learn about what information you give and at what, what times you give it and things like that. So, but that, that was my, that was an, a good lesson though. I think even before starting to shoot the film, because there was a lot of challenges that came along those lines later on during the production that we had to deal with. And, um, that kind of gave me a, a bit of the tenor of everything that was going to come because, you know, also I think at the time you're, you're asking about the, the, the feeling in the country. And I feel like at the time, especially internationally, there was a sense of triumphalism, you know, good had, con good had conquered evil, light, light had conquered dark. And, you know, that's not, uh, obviously you live there a very long time. You, it's far more complicated than that. And you understood when you're there, like there were people telling me, well, the military, they just, the generals, they just swapped out their uniforms for suits. I would often be told, you know, um, they're still there. Everything was structured the same, but they just, you know, kind of, uh, changed, changed their outfits. So it was a little more uh, acceptable. So, um, yeah, that was, that was the beginning of, uh, before I even started shooting anything and, uh, it didn't, it did not get easier. Let's just put mm -hmm. it that way. So you came into the country under these false pretenses of in order to skirt around them and be able to get to the right place and shoot in the correct way, even though you didn't have the correct visa for it. Uh, in terms of the technical issue of actually bringing that equipment over, acquiring it in country and then going to the rural Shan countryside to set up and film, uh, how did that part go? So it was, it was a mix. Um, most of the equipment came from Germany, actually, because um, my my cinematographer is this wonderful German woman named Bella Halben, who, for whatever reasons, my first film um, decided that she was going to take a chance on me and go on this crazy project. And uh, so a lot of the equipment, the camera, the lenses, like all of that stuff, a steady cam, came from Germany um, via via air freight to Bangkok. And then we kind of piecemealed it out and distributed it amongst the rest of the crew, which was not large. It was six people. Um, and they brought it on domestic, I mean, not domestic, but um, just commercial flights into Myanmar, um, spread out across. And they were kind of asking them, like, what is this? And they're like, oh, it's, it's fishing, fishing gear. You know, there's like long long bags and things and uh they didn't really understand what it was so um we were able to get the gear in that way and then we also got we sourced things from thailand and then just a few basic things from yangon that we brought up and then a, a couple crew members or a few um in the electrical department and also grip and just general pa we we hired some local people as well so and then we had we all met at that point I had been, um, up in, uh, up in the, in both, um, Bagan and, uh, near Inlay Lake and Tangji. And so we all kind of rendezvoused and then went up to the mountains together. And that literally involved putting gear, slinging it across bamboo pulp poles and, and hiking it up the mountain. 
um, at a certain point because there's no way to get there because it was the end of the rainy season. So even a, like a four by four truck wouldn't have been able to get up there. So that was, that was pretty interesting. And once we arrived, um, you know, there's no electrical system up there. So we had to build our own electrical system to give ourselves power for the lights, for, for the computers, for all the backup, because it was shot on digital, of course, um, all of that. So that was the whole thing, like finding a, a good generator. And my sound guy was complaining the whole time. As a, as a podcaster, you'll understand the, the challenges of, of having things quiet. And, you know, we, we got as good of a generator as we could source in Tongji, uh, but it still was so loud. <laughs> it, it was not some ha- quiet Honda uh, generator that's just whisper quiet. It was so loud that they had to build a pit for it and with enough air so it didn't die and it was it was pretty intense so yeah we basically moved into the the monastery we were sleeping on the floor um obviously there's no running water or anything like that and uh we we lived with them as we we shot the film Mm, right. So speaking of those people that you were living with, the, the people in the film, I hesitate to call them actors because that was my next question. There's five monastics depicted. There's the four novices and the one Sayada, and then there's maybe half a dozen other um, uh, lay people of different stripes that they come in contact with at different moments in the film. Uh, of maybe a dozen or so characters total, it seems like, of those uh, dozen or perhaps a few more that were were in the film, how many of them were actors and how many of them were just doing all of this the first time? Well, everyone was doing it the first time. And it was just um, Shain Tetza, who plays the, the main novice, Koyin Wichizara, who was not a novice living at the monastery. He was from a neighboring village. Um, and he was actually inducted as a novice though, during the, the shooting. So in the film, when you see him getting his haircut in the, in the ceremony, that's that actually his, his, uh, ceremony becoming a Koyin. Um, and he, did, he lived with them. He did everything. As you know, it's very common for uh, for a boy of that age to do it anyway. So it wasn't some strange thing. But he did it during the shooting of the film. So he was had some time to to understand how to do things and and follow all the all the different uh, routines of of monastic life and what have you. But everyone else, um, the three other novices, were novices and they still are monks uh, they were living there at the time the Sayadaw was the Sayadaw of of that monastery and the incidental characters were all just villagers that uh, I'd cast and we'd worked uh, with them that way no one had ever been on camera before and the boys except for Shantet Chan- who lived with his family in a normal like not in the monastery normally they had maybe seen a couple films on a portable dvd player some kung fu films that's about it so they'd never really seen any a movie before and they certainly hadn't seen facebook and social media and so i was really interested in seeing if i could capture a certain kind of performance from them because especially in the west um i would say oftentimes you turn a camera on a kid and 
they that that kind of innocence or you know just artlessness disappears because they've been trained since they were infants i'm taking a picture or we're filming you and this is what people who are getting filmed should behave like and oftentimes working with children well any actors also many adults but children will kind of put on a, a different persona trying to be something else and what i really wanted to get at was the the simplicity and um relative timelessness of their existence that wasn't impinged upon media uh, upon by media at the time so and how did you find the performance that you got from them when you turned the camera on what how did they respond to that well there is a lot of movie magic there. I would have to give credit to my editor, Sebastian Bonde, in, who's in, sitting in Berlin right now, I presume still, um, because we had to construct the performance in a lot of ways from the kids because they had never acted before. They barely knew how, like, had seen a film. So to try to un explain the the disciplines of shooting and <laughs> repeating the same things over again was it was quite difficult uh with with some of the boys and so we really had to do a lot of takes and draw you know from here and there and everywhere and kind of con construct a more continuous performance now with shine ted i would say he was just a natural as soon as the camera like went on he was in character and he he was nailing it like i've uh, i'd never really seen someone who had never acted before be so so good at inhabiting the character and being conscious of when the camera is on and then as soon as we went to cut he was just goofing around and joking and everything like that and that was really interesting as well just to see the that, that some people even this this kid from this village had this natural ability within him and uh, it, was, it was really fun to play with that and help him discover it and, and build it out but you know it's like with any time when you work with kids it was just it was a little more challenging because of their lack of total lack of experience and also language um, at the time I, mean, I could speak pretty decent Burmese um, but they that was not their first language you know, their, their first language is Sean. So already I'm trying to communicate with them in uh, what's their second language that they've been learning in school, not their native tongue. So it, it was difficult, but we played a lot of games. You know, I tried to make it as fun as I could for them. And, you know, you have to, there's challenges with children, but then there's working with children, but then there's also just so much wonder and 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 benefit that you can get from working with them because they see the world in a in a different way than than us jaded adults do and so just being able to tap into that and help help them express it is is for me is the way to to work with kids when when they're acting to really turn it into kind of a fun game um, where they can explore their imagination and kind of transport themselves Hmm. Yeah, well, let's take another listen to a clip from Golden Kingdom here. Mm 
Kau ada So that was another clip from your feature film, Golden Kingdom. And one of the thoughts I had when I was watching it, I guess somewhere between like 20 or 30 minutes in, I found myself getting a little confused about uh, certain aspects of how the story was developing, such as well, way, where the village is exactly next to them that they're going to, and why are they going, they're seeming to be going in this direction, and why did the Sayada go away? He had to leave. What was that purpose? And why did this person suddenly come? And over time, I started to realize, well, wait a second, this is actually not that important. These are, this is, there's parts as the film goes deeper into it, it, it takes on something of a dreamscape kind of uh, vibe, at least to me, and starts to combine the reality with the fantasy, with the spiritual, with the superstitious, and one is not quite sure uh, what uh, which plane you're in as you're watching things, and the film doesn't really help to correct or to stabilize where you are in a certain point you've just you mentioned just now that even the question of you know when it takes place or um or or which military the the one soldier who comes in is a part of that this is also up uh, up in air somewhat and so you know in some sense like these questions of when where who why what uh, are are unanswered in the film. These you know, primary uh, situational questions of of what's happening to who and and what's the result and where is it that these uh, it's obviously very much rooted in a Burmese Buddhist monastery or a, a, say a Shan Buddhist monastery in Shan State, um, and you get to know the characters. But these other uh, many of these other things are are somewhat floating and. I think, uh, at least for me as a viewer, as I watched it, to be able to, once I realized what was going on, to let go of that that need or that concern and let myself fall into the different vignettes of the different people passing through and the not to understand objectively what was happening, but that this is how the protagonist was understanding what was happening, sometimes not understanding that it it plunged you into this uh, in, into this energetic uh, feeling of what the characters were going through, uh, even as it might not make total sense to them. And uh, th- these are just my subjective feelings as a viewer that I'm relaying. I'm wondering from your standpoint as a filmmaker, what might resonate with you or what your objective was as you were uh, looking to bring the plot and the stories and the people and the places together and what you were trying to create. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're you're touching on a lot of things that some people can find frustrating about the film, um, but also some many people find very rewarding about the film. And I found when I was traveling with it a lot, like people really wanted answers. You know, they wanted to know. Well, specifically, if we want to get to that to the when of it all, uh, they really wanted to know what you know what did this depict. When did, what did this mean? Uh, was this this X conflict with these people and at this year? And we're totally beyond that, right? And at the time, I would say, no, I, I don't know. I can't answer that question because it, for me, it was a very it was archetypal in a way. 
the conflict and the children and all of it, the story. And in, in a way, it emerged to me archetypally. So to, to ground it, to tie it to a specific moment or a specific event seemed to be doing it a disservice because I wanted it to be able to speak to different moments or different situations, which unfortunately is the case now when we're finding we're back in the same or, I mean, slightly different, but in a situation where these kinds of things are happening in Myanmar once again. But I found it was very interesting to me that I found that people really wanted almost to comfort themselves, to feel a certain surety, well, this is what this is about, and this is where it was at this time, and now we're in the happy times, and Aung San Suu Kyi is in power, and everything's good, and the good guys won, and let's do a victory lap. And as someone who spent uh, not nearly as much time in Myanmar as you have, but uh, I had spent a decent amount, and that time I had spent, I had tried to go as deep as I could. Uh, I understood that the those facile narratives weren't uh, weren't really going to pertain for Myanmar, and that the road was going to be a little bit more complicated. And I w- I didn't want to provide just a retrospective, look how bad it was back then and now we're in a great spot. So I but I was just surprised that pe- how much people wanted to fix it at a specific moment or a conflict. That, that so A that was very interesting to me. And then B the narrative in general, I would say what I wanted to do, I just didn't want to show up and be give kind of a western take on what was going there. That would be a huge disservice. And also, I wasn't super interested in that. Why am I going to bring a classical, let's say, Hollywood structure, or a classical Western narrative structure to this topic, these characters, this environment? It just it doesn't make sense for me. So what I did was I started exploring, you know, Buddhist folktales. I started exploring like local Burmese folktales along with uh let's say the Jatakas, you know, uh, things like that, and constructing the narrative more around that, where in a lot of those, you don't have A, B, and C, where um, at C or Act 3, the the bad guy gets his just desserts, and then the story is over. It's understood that in some way the bad guy or whoever is going to get their just desserts in another lifetime, that the that the the karma the karma is going to be distributed into to different reincarnations, and so that radically destabilizes what we consider to be what we're, what what we think we know about narrative, if we're going across different lifetimes. And so I was really interested in playing with that, and playing with the different narrative forms that you find in these folk tales and. Um, also like the Buddhist birth tales in the Jataka and things like that. So that was my goal as well, was not to give some, although it, it's been called neorealist, the film, and also a lot of people think it's a documentary when they first hear about it. And I say, no, it's not a documentary because there's ghosts in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, I wanted we shot it like a documentary in a way um, because we were 
didn't have the resources to do otherwise, and we used all the, the, the real people and things like that. But I wanted to construct this more archetypal dream-type narrative that did service to the storytelling form in Myanmar and also neighboring countries, of course, not just come in with, you know, um, the red, white, and blue American, you know, Hollywood ending, happy ending. Not that it's not a happy ending, but it's an open ending, as you know, which also frustrates a lot of people. But for me, that was the true ending to the film um, because everything doesn't wrap up neatly in a lot of these tales. So, and as a student of Buddhism, you, you understand this. Um, so that I'd say that was the primary driver of, of that feeling and that kind of narrative tactic in the movie. And yeah, I would say also the meditative moments in it can kind of create, not a trance, I don't want to say, but a certain tone for the film that allow you to hopefully sit through your discomfort, just like when you're sitting on the cushion at first, you know, and then quiet the mind a bit and then really enter into the film and the story and the experience of those boys. Mm, and you're touching upon some aspects of like authenticity, you know, authenticity of Buddhist practice, authenticity of uh, Burmese culture, authenticity of the Shen, remote Shen monastery village. And that was also something that struck me quite a bit. And, and that's a departure from other movies that try to, other Western movies that try to exotify uh, the Orient, as they would call it then. And there's certainly, you know, you look at Japan, Korea, China, Thailand, but certainly there's been a long list of Hollywood movies that have come in and tried to bring a Burmese character uh, to the West or a Western character to what they consider as Myanmar. And those are very much through the eyes of uh, of how they've been trained to see them, you know, going all the way back to Kipling, who was so instrumental in forming some of that, those early archetypes of uh, uh, how Burmese character and, and culture appeared in Western culture. And yet, as you do in the film there's no western character there's no english language there's not even any explanation as to what's happening there's there's not even any uh any moment where one is pausing and trying to alert or or uh, telegraph to the viewers what uh why they're doing what they're doing or how this is part of it you're just thrown into this lifestyle uh and, and again this is you're thrown into two lifestyles which i think is really important to get across to listeners one is the experience of going to any foreign country and um it, trying to integrate and understand the way that society operates from the subtleties of how things look to the way they relate to different expectations and different moments uh and then the second one on top of that is which is much more complex is life in a buddhist monastery life in a burmese buddhist monastery and the the rituals the the dead time the play time the eating the uh the, the protocols with vinya of course of how um lay monk interaction interactions have to be and so your the film is capturing these these two elements without any explanation or any intruder as to why why what is happening is taking place or what it means it's just simply happening and to do this, I think to do this effectively, it, it does take 
a certain, um, how to say, a certain sensitivity and uh, awareness and, uh, and, and time, really, to be able to first know what those things are before one then thinks about, well, how do I portray them accurately? Uh, there, there needs to be a lot of reps of simply knowing what it is that takes place and, and, and understanding that and then looking at, well, how do I bring this to the screen? So can you talk a bit about how you went about trying to create these authentic structures of, of community, of culture, of language, of interaction, and then on top of that, the whole monastic element, which is so different than, you know, the thing about culture is that culture is different in different places, but it's, it's the same thing that's different. You, you don't interact this way, you interact that way. You, you don't talk like this, you talk like that. So there's at least a new protocol to fit into. When you're talking about monasticism, we don't have anything like that in our country that's anywhere similar to those protocols, to what the robe means, to the, the separate way of living. And so this is a whole other kind of experience that, that can't just be uh, kind of replaced with the one that we know, but it's on top of that. So, and I, th- I think you do a really effective job of bringing the viewer into that world as someone who's spent a lot of days and nights in monasteries. There's a, much familiar there from the, just the, the, the feel of the wood and, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the beads in the monk's hands and so much else. But what, how did you go about trying to to bring those those small interactions and rituals to life, and and, and to do it in, in a way that would also be uh, authentic and and familiar to those that were had, had been in that culture. Well, I think what you know, I didn't have very much experience prior to the the time that I'd gone back to actually shoot the film, but I came early and then was staying there for a while before that. But I had gone to India and had been living with, um, at the Ramakrishna mission in, in, in Bedomat near Kolkata with, with a friend of mine who is now called Swami Medananda, um, who had been my roommate at Berkeley. And so I spent a lot of time, a number of weeks, uh, staying at the, the monastery with them. And we had even gone to uh, Kamapakur, which is the birthplace of Ramakrishna near the, the Bangladeshi border during Durga Puja. And so I was really just thrown into the deep end of that kind of monastic life. Now, of course, uh, Buddhism is different, but in some ways, a lot of the, the traditions, you know, they're, they're kissing cousins in many different ways. And so I just had that monastic experience, uh, not just there, but then I was also in Varanasi and Rishikesh, um, staying, not, not doing just a, like a yoga retreat, but living at, um, uh, the divine life society and things like that. So my experience in, in a strange way with those monasteries, helped create the, I would say, the foundation of monastic living that I then was able to bring to Golden Kingdom. And then I was staying in Myanmar at the monastery for for a minute before we shot. And I really was just paying attention to everything and following the, the routines and just understanding the little details that I wanted to bring to screen and seemed important to me. And a lot of it was just instinct. Uh, what would be most reflective of what was happening, um, what was jumping out at me. And 
my my goal the whole time was to just really let those moments exist and to let the the life express itself on screen and not to give a, an agenda on my part to as much as I possibly could to be just kind of an, an, a midwife for these traditions and this story, which to be honest, kind of came to me in a way that most stories don't. And it felt like it was almost given to me as a, something I needed to, to help bring into the world, not out of some super ego based, uh, process where I'm like, I'm going to make this story. It was, it was kind of like, here's the story. Now you have to help make that um, come to life. And so a lot of it was just kind of working in that liminal space, I think, of working with, okay, the nuts and bolts, I need to do this, I need to represent that, etc. And then the more instinctual, um, in insightful kind of meditative space where I just felt, okay, that this needs to come and this needs to come and this needs to come. And I would say that's, that was a big part of the way that I was able to help that way of life come, come into existence on screen for, for people. And I think a lot of people have responded to it because it's not through the eyes of a Westerner, right? It's not, you're not coming there being like, oh, wow, what is this? Like, uh, seeing it through the, the blue eyes of a Brad Pitt or something. It's just there. And it's been there for hundreds of years and it, uh, for millennia, and it will be there for millennia. And that's, it, it simply is, in a way. Um, and I would say also my meditation practice aided in that as well um at that point i've been meditating for maybe five years I'm not sure can't remember exactly but i uh, definitely had been um putting in some time and which meditative tradition was that at that point i was doing um anapana so i was doing um, you know, however you want to call it, but the a lot, the Burmese uh, tradition, and it was later on. I've done vipassana. I've done the retreat and everything. But at that point, I was really just doing um, meditation on the breath, and then metta. So those two were kind of the primary um, practices I had done. And of course, I'd been introduced to mantra in India and other tactics and you know basic mindfulness things like that but my main practice especially around the time when i was shooting golden kingdom was a somewhat somewhat loosey-goosey anapana combined with metta um certainly not as strict as the goenkin vipassana that i would later learn um yeah so that's what i was mostly doing and you say you found the experience of doing Anapana and Metta while you were at the monastery in the process of preparing and shooting the film. Did that actually change the nature of some of the decisions you were making or the vibe of, of the film going forward? Or what effect did that routinely, routine meditation practice have on the uh, development of the film, would you say? It's an interesting question. I think it gave me the courage to stay with certain shots in the film longer 
to make certain choices that I would not normally have made where a lot of people were saying, no, you can't, you have to cut here, you know, like you, re you really can't just hold on them meditating. And knowing that the patience and, the, and creating the space for that and the, and the silence that something can be born in that, that it's not going to be born. It's not going to come from it for every viewer, but at least to give the viewers a chance to have an experience inside themselves subjectively, um, where they can sit in the discomfort of that long meditation shot, for example, and then perhaps move on to something else and find their mind quieted or understand that their mind is chattering, things like that. I don't think I would have been nearly as confident. I would have just had a shot of them meditating, you know, Hey, look, they meditate, cut next thing, you know, like as just like an activity, but understanding the actual quality of what it means when you go into a meditative practice and what it can create inside of you or whatever you even really is, um, that allowed me, I think, to be a bit more courageous in those choices uh, that I already was leaning towards making, I would say. Mm, that's that's a really beautiful answer. And I, I I can recognize what you're saying from watching the film, that there's moments that that linger. And being a normal watcher of films, you kind of have certain subconscious expectations and like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to, supposed to see. And now it's panning and now time is moving. And then there's some kind of invisible clock in your mind that's like, okay, well now, now I've gotten this and then it stays a little longer. And for me, it was just so fascinating because it was, again, I've been, I've lived in this detail for so long that there was just more for me to explore and to think about and to enjoy and to rest in that. Um, one hopes that, uh, <laughs> that your viewers, too many of your viewers don't have cell phones as they're watching and that temptation to um, go away from from the observations of the mind or of lingering in a scene and, and take the uh, the easy way out that um, this this technology has plagued all of us with. But, uh, you know, also on that score, it made me think as well that, you know, if there is a moment for you to exotify anything, there is really nothing greater as a filmmaker to exotify than um, the uh, than a, a Burmese monk in a teak monastery sitting in meditation and, uh, and, and all the ways that that could be exotified. And it just struck me as you were saying that, that this, in my mind, this was not exotified. This was shown with the kind of reverence, patience, silence, even you could even say boredom, confusion that, that the, the activity of meditation brings. Um, there's something beautiful and peaceful about it as well, but it's, it's certainly, uh, the, the, there's, there was no indication I had watching this that was, that fell in line with some of the other, um, um, the other uh, Western takes on on Asian Buddhist countries and monks pursuing their their practice uh, that uh, that tried to 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 make it into something it wasn't. It was simply this was simply an activity they did during the day. And the the, the Sayada that you were filming was probably really meditating as as that was as the camera was on, and that that uh, normalcy, that routine was was there as, as authentically and as um, naturally as, uh, you know, bowing to the statue or going on alms rounds or uh, just the way that a lay person would, would approach a monk and the kind of interaction they would have both uh, bodily and, uh, and verbally that, that this was, um, th this really was something that, that lingered and just had you, had you stay with as a viewer. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it's. Yeah, I'm just a man. I'm thinking about. I, I mean, I really like the Taiwanese poster for the film, but they really, they really went for it. They got a lot of. They got all your colors on it when they're meditating. It's like there's there's Buddha statues behind them. You know, it's really like a. Um, I don't want to say exotified, but it's a super kind of like what you would imagine this kind of colorful Myanmar uh, experience to be in a way like with the temples and stuff like that. And from a Western standpoint, it's, I, I don't know. I just, I, I think it's if, well, if you've lived with monks, you know, that all monks are not enlightened <laughs> far from it, you know? So that just having that experience of the, the normalcy, the workaday world of living with monks and, them arguing with each other and you know you have some that are really very very quite spiritually advanced if you want to use that word and then you have others who are just kind of there by happenstance and you have others who are using that as a way to get power over other people you know there's a, there's a whole society that exists there so for me having had spent time with in different traditions and different monastic traditions and kind of understanding that, that led me to believe like, okay, just in and of itself being a monk isn't some sort of, they're not, they're not going to become Buddha, you know? <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot more there. And so that helped me kind of frame it in a, in a more just manageable way. Like this is happening, this is existing and it's just going to keep existing for, forever and there's going to be let's say you know we're just between friends here but there will be enlightened individuals that emerge from that tradition from time to time you you know you will not often meet them but they're they're around and there will be a lot of other people who are just there because that's where they ended up because of circumstance or they were put there as children you know there's it's a much more complex thing than this sort of exotified sitting in lotus and under the banyan tree and reaching enlightenment it's a in a, in a way the monastery and the, the the buddhist order in myanmar as you know serves as um civil society in myanmar because the the uh, the military has hollowed out so much of that that the the sangha has to to work as that like doing so many earthly things in myanmar which of course is quite dangerous as well yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, just having this conversation now, it makes me reflect on what came to me as a big surprise in a television show called Barry. It's a comedy about an, a, a, a hitman with uh, Bill Hader. And the second season, they somehow bring in a Burmese Buddhist monastery in Los Angeles that's somehow involved in the plot story. And of course, there's all shades of ridiculousness that, that anyone with any background understanding can pick apart. But the thing that I remember standing out to me was more the subtleties of just, um, uh, and what, what stood out specifically was the, the placement of Buddha statues that they, uh, in, in the so-called Burmese monastery in Los Angeles, as well as in the, the, the Burmese homes, they have uh, Buddha statues that are just in completely random places that look very much like a set designer with no experience just thought he had to have Buddha statues. And so he just went and got which ones he could found and he put them in which places you could. And anyone with any experience in Burmese Buddhist culture knows that the 
the placement and the the setup of where a Buddha statue is and the way that it's honored is is set by uh, a whole litany of of do's and don'ts and um and and so that kind of haphazard way of just setting everything all around and just saying and and saying well this is good enough and it's uh, or maybe not even that thought just wanting to appeal to a western audience that can get a kick out of it and of course a film like this is exactly the opposite it, it helps that you probably didn't have to set up too much set design i imagine that this was these were real homes and monasteries where you were shooting so the the uh you know right down to the the design on on the plates or the bowls or the blankets or the pillows these were things that as we were watching we were like oh yeah that's the uh that's the kind of pillowcase that you buy in Myanmar you don't have many more options than that style and so there, there's definitely an authenticity in uh in 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 all of the the way that those environments were arranged yeah i mean we we went to the basically the store you know the monk store <laughs> that they have in Tangji and we're like, okay, we need four or not four, but like eight of these, or I can't remember how much we got, you know, cause you need costume changes in case something gets dirty and we need, so we just bought everything just for, for costume and also for the design for the stuff that we needed to change or move slightly. We got them all just, you know, at the, the store where the monks get their, their robes and their fans and all of that. And then everything else, of course, yeah, was just sourced on spot. You know, it could, it could have been, uh, you know, production designed by Buddha, you know, <laughs> in a way. Um, yeah, and I, I actually saw Barry, um, which I, which I love. I think it's, it's kind of a great show. But yeah, that, that part of it, they were, just, they were just like, what's, well, okay, we've got Russians, which of course, even then, it's kind of like, it's so over the top. Um, they're like, what else sounds kind of weird and like scary in a way, like. Oh yeah, Burmese. You know, like there's some there's weird stuff that happens there, and they're dangerous, but it's also kind of can be funny, and yeah, um, they yeah they didn't really they weren't very sensitive about. That. Yeah, well, th this is usually what you get. I mean, if you even if you go to a, an even more ridiculous film that is um, is uh, I, I would not put any uh, acclaim to. Like I, I also enjoy Barry is uh, Hangover Part Two, which takes place in Thailand and there's a scene where they go to a Thai monastery in Bangkok and it's basically like a cross between a Shaolin Kung Fu Tibetan monk that is in Theravadan Thai tradition. And it's, it's so, uh, the, the humor of it just escaped me to such an extent because the, the, the inaccuracy at, at every level, not that I'm a stickler to everything has to be according to, to perfect detail, but the incongruency of, of going to a Thai monastery and finding a Shaolin slash Tibetan monk and, and, and no uh, intentional irony, just a complete lack of understanding in the film itself as being shot in Thailand. Um, that was, uh, you know, that, that is usually the standard fare of um, whether, whether it's the more positive spin of trying to exotify or whether it's just uh, trying to, to make humorous or make light. It's, uh, it's usually not done with, so much uh, attention to detail or, or interest in that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we can agree that despite large strands in the West uh, of society that are interested in, let's say, the yogic tradition or um, the Buddhist meditative traditions and things like that, the, the vast majority of society um, is 
I would say, I wouldn't say they're threatened by that, but they're like, yeah, the only proper attitude would be kind of one of ridicule and um, why are you going to waste your time doing that, you know? And look, there's some Kung Fu stuff to throw in there. Ha ha ha. You know, and maybe I don't, I can't remember the berry stuff, but maybe it's like, ha ha, you think these like Buddhist monks are so good, but they're actually moving heroin because opium comes from Burma. Ha ha ha. You know, <laughs> like I don't, you know, like I, I don't know exactly, but the, the, the most people's attitudes uh, to, towards that is, you know, they have, they don't, they have no understanding. And of course, why would they? Right. It's not like we, we, we create an environment that's necessarily wants to make people curious about stuff like that in, in a real way. And, you know, most people, you know, I started meditating in a, at one, one minute, you know, I could meditate for one minute and then it was two minutes, but I can't tell you if I had a, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me that they, they can't quote unquote can't meditate you know, I'd have many dollars, my friend. <laughs> and, you know, they tell me that, oh, my mind is just too, too noisy. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, well, that's the, the point of meditating more is that, you know, um, but that discomfort, I, I would say that arises. Uh, we don't, we do not live in a, in a society that or a culture that allows us to sit in that discomfort. It's just instantly, yeah, pick up the cell phone and look at something. And if, I mean, I, of course, am, am as guilty as, as the next person. You know, I, I often find myself unconsciously just looking at something because there was a moment of, of free space and I'm just all of a sudden lost in, lost in this kind of dream. And that's with like, having over a decade, like more, 14 years or so of mind training. And I'm still getting very, I'm very susceptible to it. So, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's funny saying that one is, one's mind is too busy to meditate. It's kind of like saying one is too dirty to shower or any number of other analogies like that. But I, I clearly remember when cell phones came to Myanmar and I, you know, the entire meditative experience at the monastery was, was changed. It was really quite a, quite a shock to have those intrusions. And before the introduction of, of cell phones and technology, um, there was a lot of boredom and a lot of sitting around, a lot of staring at walls and just, and being in nature and just understanding the, the role that nature was playing, which is so important in Myanmar because, because of the climate and because of the home construction, uh, just much more simple that w one is not really trapped within one's walls to any degree, the separation between public and private space in Myanmar is very different than in the West. And, uh, and, and the lack of cell phones went into just this communal space of, uh, of attention and of, of a limit to, um, to, to where one's mind can go. And there was a simplicity with that. And I clearly remember when cell phones, the, the, the first moment that I saw technology introduced in, uh, in the rural monasteries where I was at and just, um, just really being, uh, being amazed at what that would, how that would transform everything overnight from even more than I think modern societies where, uh, 
before the introduction of the cell phone, you when you had reached your your point of of study or conversation or meditation or whatever it was, that there was nothing left to do but you know as I mentioned, stare at the wall or stare at the nature or or just sit around. And often it's so so hot that that's what people do just to conserve energy. <laughs> when you live in that kind of hot weather for an extended period of time, believe me, you you start to realize how even very subtle things like thinking too much or heightened emotions can actually raise your heat level. And so you uh, you, you you definitely start to realize all the little little ways you can just have your body temperature down a couple degrees. And and um, and and often that that just involves just just sitting and being, and the introduction of the cell phones and technology there that uh, that changes it wholeheartedly. So that's you know it's quite interesting that you were there, probably really right before that got introduced. So you you know this this was really one of the last moments that you or anyone could have captured the experience of uh, of what it, as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview. Uh, people who were not as influenced by cameras going on and off because they had not witnessed many cameras and had not even seen many movies. So that's that that is really a time capsule in that way. Yeah, I had I had the sense that it was really the last moment I could have done the movie the way I did it because they were punching this road through behind the monastery and it hadn't been finished yet, but they had cleared a lot of the the ground for it and uh, you actually see part of the road um when the old man approaches um our main character towards the end of the film and so there's that wide like kind of a leveled space that was going to be paved and um it hadn't been by the last time i was there and i'm not sure if it has at this point since i haven't been able to go back but i had i had the sense that it was all going to change and there were a couple cell phones that were floating around they just arrived that year and also you know there was no electricity but they were using solar power hooked onto a car battery to charge the cell phone before they even had lights and i was like this is i'm like this is a they're skipping a few stages here you know a few a few steps and i could just of course like everywhere in the world, I could see it was going to change and then also just become very much the way that the internet or whatever you want to call this experience that we're having with cell phones and everything was just going to level off the experience in a way. It, it kind of generalizes experience across the world. You know, style, when I was growing up, style was much more regional and localized, and especially in countries, but even within the United States. And, you know, of course, now there's just kind of an international style from amongst certain groups of people from Hong Kong to Kiev to Amsterdam to L.A. to Omaha, you know, to, it's all kind of a flattening of that. And I could see that kind of coming down the pike. So I really was wanted to capture that. But then also it. I knew it allowed me, it kind of gave me a bit of air cover, as it were, to shoot the film because there wasn't cell phones everywhere. There wasn't going to be people filming us shooting the film and then sending that to their cousin who then sends it to whoever. Um, you know, there's no, there's no telephone. There's no service up there. So there was no way to really contact us. 
And so once we were up there, I felt like we were in this kind of protected space where we could shoot the film, even though right before we shot, and maybe I should have talked about this earlier because it was, was insane. Um, we were maybe two days before we were going to start shooting principal photography. I wake up in the morning and I see the, the son of my local producer and fixer just in a total panic, just ridden up on a motorbike, on a dirt bike, and then kind of run up the rest of the way to the mountain. Because it's a, it's a day hike if you just hike it normally. And coming up to warn us that the military was coming to see, because they'd heard that some things were going on up there and they wanted to know what was happening. And my visa had expired at this point. So I would have been not... I don't you know who knows what would have happened. So I had to go um, I had to go down to the town and kind of hide out for a couple days while um, we worked out an agreement with the local um, colonel, as it were. I believe it was a colonel. And uh, that was interesting because I also understood how the military operates, how the structure is. I, I don't know how it is now. Um, but at the time, and that's what I'm talking about, the cell phones, it was almost like there were these independent guys from the military, the colonel. Of course, they have to answer to their higher-ups, but they, it seemed like they have their own ambit where they could operate and were kind of in charge of these different regions. And I found that to be kind of interesting, that we were able to placate one of the local colonels and that... By doing that, I could kind of go under the radar of like larger um, intelligence services or military um, oversight. And yeah, I was able to go back in a couple days and, and we were able to shoot without incident after that until the very end when we had a few um, problems with one of our translators who was trying to extort us. And yeah, that was, that was, a, that was a fun fun plot twist at the very end. And, um, yeah, there were a couple checkpoints at the very end that we got through. I was just like, come on, <laughs> like crossing our fingers and we, we got through and then everyone left the country, uh, before I did. And they just redistributed the, we had sets of hard drives and we had someone come in from Bangkok who had not been associated with the film at all, who hadn't been in the country. And she just came in from Bangkok for the night got a backpack with a set of the hard drives and then flew back the next day. And then I had someone else fly on a different flight totally separately with another set of the hard drives. And then I waited till everyone got out of the country. And then I, I flew out and I had someone, I had to hire someone to basically walk me through the airport to immigration. Standing there, he said, wait here. He went into the immigration uh, room with my passport and at a certain point after maybe 10 15 minutes he handed me the passport and says okay go go and so he's like go now go now go now and I, I went through the uh, diplomat line and uh, walked through and then was able to fly back to Bangkok but yeah of course there was one final you know uh, hurdle to get over uh, but I don't think we'd be able to do that now because of just 
people would be able to communicate so much more easily um, and kind of tracking where I was at and communications and things like that. So, mm, Right. A very harrowing end of the filming. Uh, let's listen to another clip from the movie Golden Kingdom. <laughs> So we talked a bit about the authenticity that you were aiming for in how you were portraying the monastic environment as well as the culture, language, interactions, everything along those lines. What kind of reception have you heard about the film from local audiences who saw it and who, of course, the uh, many of the motifs, both physical as well as some of the supernatural, would be familiar to them? How, how has it landed with, uh, with viewers that you've heard from locally? Well, unfortunately, I was never... My, my dream, of course, was to have the, the film in... Uh, in Myanmar and to go to screenings and things like that, but it just wasn't, we weren't able to work that out. And, um, yeah, I just, I thought that's, that remains one of my, my regrets, you know, and I've heard that the, the DVD is available on bootlegs and things like that, which makes me happy. Uh, of course, uh, that people can see it, but that was one of the reasons I wanted to make the film to begin with was to kind of, capture that moment and, and, and reflect back to Myanmar audiences, um, their, their own world and their own culture in a way while trying to step as much out of the way as I could, because at the time, of course, now there's, there is a much more developed, well, now, <laughs> now after the coup, things are quite tenuous, but there's been developed a, a much like larger local, um, cinema culture but at the time it had been really it was really they were of course making tons of films but there were the kinds that you would see on the long bus journeys you know where they would <laughs> i mean i'm sure you, you i'm sure you know the the, the kind of film mm -hmm. so yeah. I, I wanted to take a moment in time to, to capture that with like you know the best uh cinematic equipment i could i could bring into the country which wasn't available in the country at the time so, um, but you know, the, 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 the folks I have engaged with, um, who, who are from Myanmar, but outside the country, uh, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they really enjoyed it. They didn't have anything. They were like, oh, you got this wrong. Or you got that wrong. Um, I think it was just nice to them, for them, especially when it first came out to, to be able to, to see the, that experience and that, that's sliver of life and that tradition represented on the big screen um, in a way that was um, true to their experience, I hope. And, it, you know, it's, 
I, I don't take credit for this because uh, my my cinematographer is is so skilled, but it, the film just looks gorgeous. She was able to capture so much out there and to be able to watch that on big screens with audiences as well, um, especially now, however many, how many decades are we into the pandemic? Um, to that, that collective experience on the big screen and, you know, we shot in 4k. And so uh, it was just, it was really just wonderful to kind of share that collective experience with people. And, um, you know, I think, uh, one of the, one of the best compliments I ever had was uh, I had a screening at, at Oxford University, and there was a woman there who was she's not Burmese but she'd lived there for ten years um, and is an expert on specifically on folkloric tradition within Myanmar and all of that and like the tribal. Um, cultures and things, things like that. And she was saying she was very surprised that I had been able to represent that in, in, in the way it had been represented without having really just lived there for a decade as it were. And so that, that made me feel happy because I just didn't want, I don't want, I didn't want to create a, a false impression or just put my personality onto it you know that, that's not what it was about and so to, to get that feedback was has been the best uh out of everyone i think of like the local burmese uh, or myanmar people who've seen it and then also people who just really know the culture um because like i said it's not my vision of it it's in a way i just wanted to kind of be a midwife for it to give people an opportunity to experience it and have it captured in this this cinematic document that people can go back to years from now if they want to and and understand what life was like in in the monastery like you're saying before there were cell phones um, before whatever happens next right so, right and in capturing this kind of daily life as it's unfolding, uh, so much of the surroundings is based on nature, on, on living in this rural community. And as I mentioned earlier, with the, uh, I know Shan is, is a bit higher, so there's um, it's not quite as hot as some of the dry zone areas, but uh, but there's still um, the uh, the private the the public private nature of some of the buildings of course a monastery is not a private place um and people coming and going and the way that they live and so the uh the surrounding nature of in the area that they're in outside their home outside the monastery uh, really comes alive through this both through the cinematography as well as through the sounds that that come and i read in a prior interview you did that you considered nature as kind of a fifth character so how conscious were of you of trying to of of both trying to capture this local nature and then the, the way that that was achieved in bringing that into the story as a fifth character well i think um it's interesting to think about that now from from my current standpoint. Um, but yeah, it really was the morning, I think, after I was first at the monastery for the very first time. And I had an encounter with nature, let's say, where I, I went off, off uh, away for a little bit and kind of just sat there and there's no one around there. It's, it's so 
isolated. There's a village, but this was so quiet and kind of let that wash over me. And I, I come from nature. I'm not, I wasn't born in, in Manhattan or something. I come from basically rural Oregon. So I'm used to nature, but the specific uh, quality of that nature was what allowed, and, and not to sound too mystical, but it kind of allowed the space for the story to emerge within me. And so I felt a connection that I needed to kind of pay homage to that connection or, or that inspiration in the film. And I mean, as you know, not in the Buddhist tradition, but in, in the local tradition, there's the, the Nats, the, uh, the, I don't know what you want, what we'd want to call them, but like the local, um, nature spirits for different spots, whether it's a source of water or different, uh, you know, trees and things like that. And I understood as I spent time there that there was this Buddhist tradition, but also th that the Nats were paying, playing a, an important role also of the local people's belief system and that their connection with them and with nature was also quite important. And it reminded me of, in a way, my connection with nature when I was a child. And in a way, it was much more mysterious and magical and anything could happen. And I'm not saying, I, I don't, I'm not so sure that that's the, not the right uh, way to view nature in a way. And I think, and I will not try to quote because I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but basically Jung also said, you know, if, if ever you're in this kind of alienated state or having a, a, an experience where you're, you're totally disconnected from yourself, just go into nature and it will kind of connect you to a larger, not just nature itself, but also a larger, let's say, what he would call it, the self, uh, as the archetype. Um, so I wouldn't say all of that stuff was going through my mind at the time, but looking back on it now, I can see how important it was for me to have nature as this kind of um, active participant in the narrative because as you stated it is kind of imposing on you there's no there's no air conditioning you know you're kind of you're at the you're at the whim and of course in, in chan state it's much more it's much cooler as you said but there's plenty of other things that happen and if you're just living there with no electricity no running water things like that you're far more connected to what's happening in the world around you. Um, you don't even have to get into the gnats and the different spirits and things like that. Just by dint of living a more simple life, you're going to be more connected and, and uh, conscious of, of nature in that. And in terms of, cr of creating it, um, I was working with my sound editor, uh, David Hughes, and he and I really worked together to create this soundscape that created a certain presence um, sonically in the film that where it wasn't just filler, but I was trying to create a sense of, of a, not another character. Um, I think maybe if I was going back to myself uh, 
five years ago or six years ago doing that that interview i'd be like you know maybe maybe it's not a character but it's it's something else you know um and we were able to create a kind of a soundscape that that supported the experience of the human characters as well and you know i'm grateful for him for having done that as well Mm, that's great. That's great. So this film is being included in the upcoming uh, Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival. So many listeners can check that out there and all the proceeds that are that will be donated. It's uh, anyone can come and watch the films for, for free and then they encourage donations. All those donations, all the films have been generously donated by the filmmakers for the, the Benefit Festival and then all the proceeds will go towards uh, humanitarian missions that the organizers of the film festival will be carrying out. And that does bring us to present day. And you referenced earlier in the uh, the interview how you, you didn't place it in, in a actual physical time and, and even place, I would argue. I mean, we know that it's somewhere in the Shan Hills, but we uh, for for people more knowledgeable with the geography, we don't know exactly where it is situated and which borders and ethnic groups. It's uh, it, it's something of a, a universal thing told, but told very locally through a Burmese point of view. And yet now, it, unfortunately, it's become all too prescient and relevant in, uh, in in what the situation is that that people are going through. And, um, and I think it speaks uh, quite powerfully and tragically to uh, what, what life is there now for many people. So what are your thoughts on seeing how the, the, the country's trajectory was put so off course with the coup and then and how things have developed in this past year and then going back and seeing the type of film that you made and and of course you're not exactly predicting the future because this was happening in ethnic areas at that time this happened years before so you're uh you're 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 definitely portraying something that has been accurate in different times and places in the country but now has really engulfed the entire country and you've you've captured in a fictional account something that uh many scenes in there probably speak out to be much more closely aligned to things that are literally happening this past year that people are facing in terms of trauma and loss and um, and fear and uh, and everything else. So, what what has that been like for you to realize that some of the the things you were depicting and wanting to portray there have now come all too true in the present day? Yeah, I mean, it's a tragedy to see what's what's happened over there and you know one I, I've, I have no hopes for the next time I can go to, to see to see the boys and see how they're doing and for example the, the Sayadaw just passed away this year um, I found out and that's you know makes me sad that we can't uh, that the the country is in its current state and we won't be able to go back for quite a long time it seems and uh, but at the time when I made the film, uh, as I think I stated earlier, I wasn't, I wasn't overly optimistic. I was optimistic, but I wasn't overly optimistic about the situation. And I would do a lot of Q and A's and people would really want to firmly 
place to film in the past. And I would say, I would often say like right, right now, somewhere in Myanmar, someone is being hurt due to political violence somewhere in the country. And, and this is before the situation with the Rohingya and everything like that. It was, it was uh, slightly before that because I knew that this wasn't some sort of historical thing. Now, unfortunately, the situations that were happening that I'm depicting in the film are yeah, essentially happening today. And it seemed to me that it was a cyclical pattern that could be occurring. And unfortunately, that's has been kind of prescient and something I never would want to come around. Um, but I also think in the film, there's certain directions or pointers that the boys do discover or on earth or find within themselves for dealing with a moment like this. Um, and I think that's well, the first time I went to Myanmar. I was very, I was struck by how talking to people who had been imprisoned or had relatives murdered or just total violence, villages wiped off the map, things like that, uh, how just casual death was in the country. And on, on one hand, seeing that, and on the other hand, seeing... I remember being struck by this guy that I'd met who was a construction worker, and seeing him before he went to work, sitting and doing like a 30-minute, um, presumably like a anapana-type meditation before going to lay bricks. And the, the contradiction of that um, and holding that tension between this tradition of nonviolence and, and meditation and insight and um, loving all creatures, and then just the easiness with which death, um, the total discount of, it, of, of human life, um, could exist side by side in, in this culture for qu quite a long time. I'm going to say in this culture, but in the country, rather. And so... That was interesting for me to explore um, that tension between that in the narrative. And when I made the movie, I knew it hadn't just gone away. Um, having Aung San Suu Kyi in, in power wasn't just going to make, or at the, that time she wasn't totally in power, but having her freed and doing everything wasn't just going to make it go away with a snap. But I didn't think that it was going to kind of boomerang so so hard and so that's i don't know if it's i was not surprised but i definitely was not expecting it hmm, right well thank you so much for joining us here on this episode of inside myanmar podcast it's been really educational for me to hear some of the background of making the movie as well as the mindset that went into what you were trying to create it definitely gives me a, a new uh, new feeling to go into a rewatch to get that out. And I, I really encourage all listeners to check this out, uh, especially those that have an interest in the Buddhist life of the country, how beautifully this is depicted. It's, it's really a, uh, a gem set in time that unfortunately time has moved on from. 
uh, but hopefully those days will be back in some form again. And uh, and thank you for thank you for appearing on and and for letting your film be part of this festival. And uh, and best of luck with your upcoming projects. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to discuss it with me. And I hope uh, your listeners will. Uh, take the opportunity to watch the film and uh, support the festival because it's really important that we we help everyone who's working on these efforts in the country right now because there's not been a lot of hope recently and unfortunately i think it's going to be incumbent on upon people outside the country to start putting pressure to start to make things happen because otherwise it's just going to stay the same so Please, uh, please go uh, take part in the festival and donate what you can. listen to this show. I realize that this is an enormously difficult time for many people who love Myanmar these days, myself included, and at times we might despair that there's anything at all we can do to stop the horrors unfolding there. However, just the mere fact of staying informed is helping to bear continued witness and keep a focus on this issue when much of the international media has moved on. And the only way that we can do our part in continuing to provide this content is through the support of generous donors, listeners like yourselves. If you found this episode of value and would like to see more shows like it, please consider making a donation to support our efforts. Both monthly pledges or one-time donations are equally appreciated. Thank you deeply in advance. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. 
Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Das ist ein Bohrer, ich bin ja nicht mehr dick.